Seltzer Kings podcasts. Yeah, Gavin, I realize that no one looted during the blackout of the Blitz. It was 1940 for ass. The following podcast contains. We're more likely to believe an important local businessman than a foul-mouthed jerk from out of town. Foul-mouthed. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you decided to connect a city of 8 million people to a single 20 amp fuse, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 369. We really had a blackout edition of the show, where we talk about that time New York City forgot to pay the electric bill. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Were You Thinking podcast is brought to you by the flashlight in the kitchen drawer. When was the last time you even thought about the flashlight in the kitchen drawer? The flashlight you depend on when things go wrong, and you just ignore until you need it. Are the batteries good? You don't even know anymore. You haven't opened that drawer since that time that you thought maybe there were some sandwich bags in the drawer where flashlight lives, but there weren't any bags and you just went through the whole drawer and never even touched flashlight. Now the lights have gone out and suddenly you need flashlight. Will flashlight work? Maybe, maybe not, because you didn't even bother to check on flashlight. The flashlight in the kitchen drawer. Take it out. Give it a click. Let me make light slubber sounds with it for a little while, because it's lonely in there, in the dark, even for a flashlight. The summer of 1977 in New York City was one of three-figure temperatures, simmering tensions, and creeping menace. A serial killer, the son of Sam, was terrorizing all five boroughs, while the city was rocked by a crime wave and reeling from a fiscal crisis that had taken it to the brink of bankruptcy. Just as it was strained to its limits on the night of July the 13th, New York was hit by a total power blackout. The city was thrown into chaos. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Sidney Scharnberg headed up the darkened newsroom for the New York Times that night, sending reporters to the trouble spots and writing copy by candlelight. He looks back on one of the most notorious and dangerous nights in the city's history, the New York 77 blackout. I've lived in New York City for almost 20 years now. And you know one of the things I've gotten used to? Is having the lights come on when I hit the switch. That's what's supposed to happen. It is, but you see... I used to live in a lot of places before I lived in New York City, and there were not infrequent times when that did not happen, even if you had pay the light bill that month. At my grandparents' house, deep in the holler of the Appalachian Mountains, any spade of wind was likely to drop a tree on a power line, and it would take a week or more before someone got around to coming out and putting the power line back up. This never bothered my grandparents, who, for the majority of their lives, didn't have electricity in the first place and were pretty skilled at living without it. But when the same thing happened down in the town where I lived as a kid, the results were kind of a big pain in the ass. I mean, you may not know this, but television? That don't work without electricity. Also, you know, we couldn't do things like cook. So we actually had to go to my grandparents' house up in the mountains where they had kerosene lanterns and wood-burning stoves until the lights came back on. Later in life, I would live in places where sometimes the power would just turn off for no reason whatsoever. Oopsie. When I was in the military, some of the remote places where we lived uh, were powered by these huge diesel generators that (laughs) would just stop working at random times, meaning someone with some kind of training had to 
come out and spend several hours staring at a bunch of dials and gauges and wires and pumps until finally they just started whacking it with a big rubber mallet and then it turned on again. Ugh, work, Thomas. Soon enough, we figured, why don't we skip the middleman and just go whack it ourselves? And that did work right up into the time we whacked something important and uh, a whole fucking unit had to be replaced. And that took three days in which we all sat in the dark and ate cold MREs by glow stick light. We probably should have learned some kind of lessons about making sure the right person with the right tool for the right job was there. But mostly it just taught us that the U.S. military was a giant clusterfuck and no one really knew what the fuck they were doing at all. Which <laughs> is not unlike your local electricity distributor, which operates in the same kind of way, except the generators are much, much more massive. Electric plants and the rubber mallets are probably a little bit bigger. If it doesn't work, hit it. Which is probably why in the summer of 1977, the entire fucking city of New York went dark and apparently the guys with the mallets were on vacation or something because that shit stayed off for a long time and things, uh... Just got a little more interesting. Allow me to set the scene for you. Hot town, summer in the city, back of my neck, getting dirty, pretty. Step down, isn't it a pity? Doesn't seem to be a shadow in the city. All around, people looking half-dead, walking on the sidewalk, harder than a match Sorry, I am legally required to play that song whenever I talk about this kind of incident. I don't make the iron law of podcasting, but I am forced to follow it. July 13th, 1977, 45 years ago, the week this podcast was released, dawn humid. The day would begin a nine-day heat wave in New York City where the temperatures would sit in the mid-90s with high humidity the entire time. The heat and humidity are supposed to climb. The 4th of July was over, and it was too early in the summer for all the rich white folks to flee to the Catskills if they were just rich, or the Hamptons if they were really rich. The Yankees were in Milwaukee facing off against the Brewers, and the Cubs were in town facing off against your New York Mets. Crime was up, the Dow was down two points for the day as the bell rang in the closing, and as the sun sank over New Jersey, the good people of the city, who were not tuned into the games, were settling down to watch either Eight is Enough on ABC, Busting Loose, which came on right after Good Times on CBS, or if they were watching ABC... Now back to the life and times of Grizzly Adams. Beatlemania had just opened on July 4th at the Winter Garden, which was, according to their press releases, not the Beatles, but an incredible simulation. Where the fuck is Ringo, you bitch? The skies above Gotham were clear, but north of the city, a line of thunderstorms was sliding across the Hudson Valley. And that is when it happened. Oh man, we haven't trotted that drop out in ages. About 50 miles north of the Bronx in Westchester County, the Indian Point Nuclear Power Station hummed along, churning out megawatts for the power-hungry citizens of New York City. The Buchanan South substation took those megawatts and eased them down to the levels where you could plug in your stereo and listen to the number one song of the nation on July 13th, 1977. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know why the Crystal's 1963 hit charted at number one with Sean Cassidy. All I know is a lot of girls and probably not a few boys really wanted to fuck Sean Cassidy, so he had a number one hit. Anyway, 
Back at the substation, that line of thunderstorms are doing what thunderstorms do, namely blast bolts of electricity into large metal objects, of which the Buchanan South certainly qualified. At 8.34 p.m., presumably just as Grizzly Adams was coming back from his bottom-of-the-hour commercial break, lightning hit the substation, triggering two circuit breakers. Now, this was supposed something that was supposed to happen. The breakers would trip, and once the surge was over, they would reset, and the power would continue to do its thing. However, in this case, somebody fucked up. And a bad part kept the breakers from closing like they were supposed to, and now less power was being sent down the lines to the city. A second lightning strike just a few minutes later knocked out two high-power transmission lines from the Indian Point plant, and this caused the other lines bringing power out of the plant to overload. So Con Edison, the power provider for the region, began to compensate by bringing other lines up to handle the load. However, someone else fucked up. Because the people who were supposed to be there to make those lines come up weren't there. Maybe they were at home watching Grizzly Adams or Aiden's Enough, but more likely they were at the bar watching the Mets lose to the Cubs. It was 8.55 p.m. that yet another lightning strike took out two more high power lines, this time in Yonkers, cutting the available power even more, leaving only one source of power, the generation state, the power generating station on the East River, to handle the load for the entire city of New York, which if it tried to do that, it would probably blow up. Well, that would that would be bad. By 9.37 p.m., the electricity for the entire city, except for a small wedge of Queens along the Rockaways, which got power from, the, the, from Long Island, began to go out. This was not the first time New York City had a blackout, November 9th of 1965. Most of the northern and northeast coast and a big chunk of Canada went dark for about 13 hours due to a series of mechanical failures originating at a hydroelectric plant in Canada. But 1965 was a very different New York than 1977. According to reports from the time, only five reports of looting were received during said blackout, and it's said that the night of the 65 blackout was one of the lowest nights for crime reports in the city's history since it began keeping records. The biggest impact were around 800,000 people trapped on subways. Nor would 65 or 77 be the last blackout in New York City. August 14th, 2003, just after 4 p.m., a large power failure hit the Northeast and Canada again, along with a big chunk of the Midwest, due to what they called was a software glitch, but I think we all know what was happening. You're totally watching porn. The city had limited power restored by 8 p.m. that night, and it was treated like a big holiday by New Yorkers, because again, 2003, very different city than 1977. And most recently, Hurricane Sandy knocked out power below 34th Street in Manhattan for days, greatly inconveniencing people who wanted to charge their iPhone. But again, no looting because, again, 2012, very, very different than 1977. So, back to 1977. As the lights went out, the subway was the first to go. Unlike in 65, which was during the height of rush hour, only about 4,000 people needed to be evacuated from the trains. JFK and LaGuardia shut down and flights were diverted throughout the Northeast. The tunnels leading into and out of the city were shut down because, hey, car exhaust has got to be ventilated out and that requires electric fans. And at Shea Stadium, as the Cubs were whipping the Mets' asses, all of a sudden, the lights began to go out. So the lights are off here at Shea Stadium. All the lights are off. We see matches being lit around, cigarette lighters. The emergency lights are on in the areas around. 
the hallways, the corridors, and what have you, but a power failure here in Shea Stadium. This is the first one in the history of Shea Stadium. A 2003 article in the New York Times by Martin Gottlieb recalls what went down after that. Quote, In many neighborhoods, veterans of the 1965 blackout headed out to the streets at the first sign of darkness. But many of them did not find the same spirit. In poor neighborhoods across the city, looting and arson erupted. The fire department counted 1,037 fires burning throughout the city that night, more than 50 of them serious. On streets like Brooklyn's Broadway, the rumble of iron store grates being forced up and the shattering of glass preceded the scenes of couches, television, heaps of clothing being paraded through the streets by looters at once defiant, furtive, and gleeful. The looters were looting other looters, and the fist and the knives were coming out, Carl St. Martin, a neurologist in Forest Hill, Queens, recalled years later. A third-year medical student living in Bushwick, when the blackout hit, said he spent the night suturing a succession of angry wounds at Wyckoff Height Hospital. And before the lights came back on, even Brooks Brothers on Madison Avenue was looted. On the first Sunday after the blackout, a priest named Gabriel Santa Cruz looked out at the congregation at St. Barbara's Church in Bushwick's and bleakly told, and bleakly told it, we are without God now. Okay, babe, you're being a bit dramatic. Dick Brass from the Daily News filed this story on July 14th of 1977. Within minutes of the blackout, there were reports of widespread looting of major fires at various locations. Looters smashed on, into stores on Broadway in the West 40s and the Queens. Young's looters quickly turned baseball bats against telephone coin boxes at the end of the Queensboro bridges. Stores were also being looted in the Bronx. The firemen labored to extinguish blazes in the darkness. At 11.14, the police radio reported that the Bronx House of Detention was on fire, and as the power failed, hundreds of diners found themselves trapped temporarily in the plush windows on the World Restaurant on top of the World Trade Center. Emergency power in the Trade Center was quickly restored, and most diners were able to finish their meals while the city below struggled in darkness. Who, rich people? White people. Damn, I went into a Boston accent at the end of that, and I can't even do a Boston accent. If you tuned in last week, you already know the city in rough shape. And the NYPD was down about 15,000 officers from its 1970 manpower. And the major difference was many, if not most of those cops, still lived in New York City instead of out in Long Island or in Staten Island like they do now. And often they were near assigned precincts so they could actually come in and help. So thousands of off-duty cops showed up and tried to keep a lid on the swelling disorder. Wendell Jameson wrote in the Daily News in 2017, quote, somebody roll the garbage cans into the street and set them ablaze. See, this is 2017, so I'm not doing any kind of accent. You got me now? Okay, back to the thing. The flames lit the faces of soon-to-be criminals fast realizing that the city and every unaffordable item behind every plate glass window, everything they ever wanted and ever needed was free for the taking. Someone smashed a drugstore window. A squad car, red lights, giving the seat at a street an eerie glow, edged up to the growing crowd. The two cops stepped out, looked around, and quickly left. The crowd chuckled. They could do anything they wanted. In the past 12 years, too many neighborhoods have become too poor. Now in the dark, store owners who had been friends became leeches driving in from the suburbs to greedily take money from their stricken customers. They were the first ones to get hit. You can take everything you could get, openly boasted an 18-year-old named Cheryl Ross. Look, dungarees are $17.99 and sneakers are $24. Who wants to buy sneakers for $24? President Jimmy Carter is not giving us what we want. He ain't giving us nothing. So we have to take it. 
in Fort Greene, Flatbush, and downtown Brooklyn in the South Bronx and along Grand Concourse in Jamaica, Queens in an upper Manhattan, and especially in Bushwick, Brooklyn, a neighborhood that tonight would be permanently scarred, armies formed. They tied storefront grates to car bumpers and yanked them down. They played tag with outnumbered cops. They took, they grabbed from groceries and supermarkets. They carted off instruments and stereos from music stores. They stole 50 Pontiacs from a Queen's showroom. They took diapers, radios, televisions, shirts, and shoes, toasters, and records, and boxes of cereals, baseball gloves, and pots and pans. They carried $100,000 worth of sofas, chairs, tables from furniture by Alexander's on the Grand Concourse, leaving behind only a parking meter that they had ripped from the sidewalk and thrown through the Xander's windows. And they set fires. Bushwick and Flatbush and the South Bronx were bathed in orange. The fire department was overwhelmed. Most of the blazes raged on. In Brooklyn, a knot of firefighters turned, away, turned their hose away from a burning building and used it to scatter looters pillaging a store across the street. The National Guard was notified and waited to be called in, but Mayor Abe Beam decided against it relying instead on the 25,000-member NYPD. And for the cops, there was no such thing as finishing the shift. When the light of another muggy morning finally came, it revealed a new city, a smoky war zone of broken glass, shattered neighborhoods, debris-strewn streets, and the murmured voices of store owners saying that they were closing down and never coming back. There had been 3,400 arrested. 558 cops injured, 851 fires, and $1 billion in damage, unquote. The overnight hours were a full-on war zone throughout the entire city. No neighborhood was untouched. <laughs> you could safely assume that the wealthiest parts, like the Upper East Side, were touched the least. Midtown wasn't the same business-friendly tourist mecca that it is today, so it missed much of the looting, mostly because there wasn't anything there worth taking, and the folks who lived down there got what there was. Throughout the long, muggy night, the entire city of New York was a free-for-all of looting, arson, and violence. 3,700 people were arrested during the blackout, still the largest mass arrest in city history. Over, the thousand, over a thousand fires broke out, some big, some small. False alarms were called in, and when the fire department showed up, they'd be pelted with rocks. In other situations, the fire department would turn the hose on looters while buildings burned out of control. The total property damage for the night ran between 150 to $300 million at the time. That's between three quarters and $1.5 billion in today's money. Surprisingly, there was only one reported murder during the blackout. And it wasn't the son of Sam. One could only assume that Chubby Behemoth was sitting in the dark up in Yonkers too scared to leave his apartment. You think I'm the son of Sam, really? You think I'm the son of Sam? A 17-year-old gangster wannabe by the gangster, I mean the traditional gangster wannabe, mafia wannabe, by the name of Dominic Siscone was killed in Carroll Garden, Brooklyn, and that murder remains unsolved to this day. In an interesting twist of coincidence, a young woman by the name of Ellen Hover had a date that night, the night of the blackout, with a young photographer who went by the name of John Berger. Ellen would disappear two days later, and her body would be found months later in a Westchester cemetery. John Berger's real name was Rodney Alcala. He's better known as the dating game killer. And Hover was possibly his first murder victim, though chances are he killed before that. And you can check out our show, episode number 299, for the full story of Rodney Alcala. By 7 a.m., power slowly began coming back up. It started in Queens and in Lenox Hill in Manhattan and power to the whole city didn't come back until 10.45 that night. 
Over the next few days, the heat persisted and the city settled into a sullen mood as the glass was swept up, the windows boarded over, and businesses tried to decide whether reopening was even worth it. And for a lot of them, it wasn't. Better take your insurance payout and get out with what little you could. And slowly, things would go from, from bad to worse for anyone who didn't live in a, quote, safe white enclave, unquote, of the city. Some of the scars from the 77 blackout wouldn't fade until well into the early 2000s. The entire world was kind of shocked by what happened in just a 24-hour span to what was considered a world-class city. Time Magazine recapped headlines from around the country and around the world. Quote, Los Angeles Times, city's pride in itself goes dim in the blackout. Newspapers abroad also focused on the looting. A headline in Tokyo's Manichi Shibam, Panic Grips New York. From West Germany's Bild Zeitung, New York's Bloodiest Night. And from London's Daily Express, The Naked City. Unquote. And once the lights came back on, that's when the finger pointed starting. Mayor A. Beam... <laughs> already had gone through the worst of the financial crisis and really didn't need any more shit to happen because 77 was an election year. Why does this always happen to me? He was already deeply unpopular and having the city looted and burned on your watch is not great for your re-election chances. So right away, he started pointing the finger at two groups. The first was Consolidated Edison, which makes sense because they were the ones whose fuckery was directly responsible for the blackout in the first place, but Abe didn't stop there. Do you wanna, you wanna guess who else Abe blamed for his problems? White people. <laughs> no, come on. Abe blamed everyone but white people. No, the looters he characterized as savages who engaged in a night of terror. And this didn't take into account that, well, yeah, the looting was worse in black and Latino neighborhoods. It happened everywhere. White neighborhoods were looted just the same as black neighborhoods. But, you know, for Abe, it was a lot easier to blame brown folks because that's always good for a few votes. And come on, you really don't have to think all that hard to understand why the looting was worse in black and Latino neighborhoods who for years had been blatantly neglected by the city, not just since the beginning of the financial crisis. Bushwick, Harlem, East New York, the South Bronx had been left to rot long before the money ran out. And when it did run out, somehow things did get worse, even if you didn't think they could. So when the looting started, it began with stores owned by people who didn't live in the neighborhoods. The 1970s equivalent of chain stores. And they were filled with high-end merchandise that nobody who lived in that neighborhood could afford. And if you spent your life looking through a store window at a color television that cost more than you made in three months, or in some cases a year, and all of a sudden the rules were just suspended, you too might engage in a little constructive wealth distribution for, for yourself. And once the first window breaks, the frenzy starts, and before long, all the windows are broken, and every store on the block is stripped down to the shelves. And then, along come the people who got there late, and they find everything empty, and they get pissed, and that's when the fires start. Living in the richest city, in the richest country in the world, and you got nothing, you too might take what you could get when the chance comes along, and you too might get pissed when you got there too late, and there wasn't anything left, left to get. I'm not excusing it. All I'm saying is, I understand it, and you should too, because any one of you could easily do the same thing if you lived in their shoes. Anyway, A. Beam lost that election, and he, uh, he lost it badly to a cat by the name of Ed Koch. Good morning, I'm Ed Koch, and I'm running for mayor, and I need your help. How am I doing? 
Ed's tenure was no picnic. And he got elected and he did manage to slap some band-aids on the city, put some spackle on the worst of the torch marks and somehow drag the city out of the abyss. And of course, Ed was helped by the easing of inflation, the real estate boom and the resurgence of Wall Street during the Reagan administration. Ah, ah, he said it. He said it. By 1981, the city's budget was balanced, and through, and through that balance, well, it's, it's difficult to call it balanced because it wasn't balanced towards the communities who actually needed it. It was mostly balanced towards the white rich people. And you know what? There were plenty of other bad things on the horizon for those poor neighborhoods in New York City. Crime, eh, it continued to rise throughout the Koch administration, and the crack epidemic that came along right on its heels made the heroin problem look like two college kids sharing a doobie in a dorm room. But that, that's a story for another time. But, but, there's one accidental effect from the blackout of 77 that would have long-reaching ramifications of pop culture for the good. The birth of hip-hop. As excerpted from Slate Magazine 99% Invisibles, Delaney Hall wrote, quote, On that evening, DJ Grandmaster Kaz, a Bronx native, and his DJ partner, Disco Wiz, were spinning records in a park. They had their sound system playing plugged into a lamppost, and Kaz recalls the evening the record just started slowing down, and you know what I mean? So quite naturally, we thought it was us. We thought we had drained too much power, and we shorted out the electricity. So we're frantic, looking around, we're checking buttons, and we're checking switches, and seeing what is up. It was chaos that night, says Kaz, and it was all, and it was exciting afterwards, but while it was going on, it was scary. But Kaz also believes that the 1977 blackout may have accelerated the growing hip-hop movement, which was just beginning to put down roots in the Bronx. His theory? The looting that occurred during the blackout enabled people who couldn't afford turntables and mixers to become DJs. Kaz admits that he himself stole new equipment that night. Went right to the place where I bought my first set of DJ equipment. I went and got me a mixer out of there, he continues. And after the blackout, all this new wealth was found by people and they just... Opportunity sprang up for that. And you can see the differences before the blackout and after, unquote. Now, this theory is hotly disputed, and there's no doubt that the origin of hip-hop predated the blackout, but it, it enter, it's entered the folklore of hip-hop that it really took off because people who could never have afforded DJ equipment got theirs on a Con Ed payment plan. It also tends to reinforce a lot of negative stereotypes associating crime with hip-hop, but I kind of like the idea that something that would go, down, go on to change the world got a bump by one of the worst nights in New York City history. So... What was different in 2003, 2012, or 2019 when another big blackout hit the city? Why didn't folks take to the street during those events? Well, a lot of things, but most of all, the people had more money during those events. Even the poorest people had more money than they did in 77. And also, there wasn't a simmering anger from the various social movements that was just ready to spark up at any moment. And the city is once again demographically different than what it was. And yeah, New York City is still a hugely segregated city, but it isn't as clearly segregated these days. I live in West Harlem, and while the neighborhood is still predominantly Dominican and African-American, it's way more diverse than any time in the history of the neighborhood. And when you're neighbors with someone, it's a, it's a little harder to hate their guts or burn down their stores. Except, of course, if you happen to be on nextdoor.com. But more than anything else, even when the lights went out in those later years, people just believed they'd be back on soon. They had faith in the structures of our society, and they were less likely to say fuck it and get what they could in the moment. And make no mistake, our faith in institution, if it continues to ebb and people keep polarizing the way they are, 
uh, we're not that far from a free-for-all from the, the, the people in 1977 did. They aren't different than us. And we're still the same angry ape that's ready to start flinging our shit against the wall the second we become mildly inconvenienced. And I want you to know, as my listeners, that if the shit does start hitting the wall, I have my eye on the, the really high-end shit at my neighborhood liquor store. And I got no problems getting it on the Con Ed payment plan. <laughs> that is it for our show this week. 45 years ago, the week we released the episode. That's the anniversary of the blackout. It's kind of the inspiration for this whole month's show about the Big Apple back then. Now, next week, we kick off two-parter on the Son of Sam, and you don't want to miss that. You know, the hardest part about it will be me not imitating Henry Sobrowski doing David Berkowitz all that time. That's, that's, that's going to be really hard. And look, I don't want to hear from anyone complaining about New York City today if they weren't here during the 77 blackout. I mean, my God, can you imagine the next door post if that happened today? Just endless whines about Karens complaining about how disrespectful the attitude of the looters are. What this is going to mean for their property values. Yeah, I'm on next door because when it comes to petty ass drama, next door is the source and I get entertainment out of that. Now, speaking of petty ass drama, rate and review show wherever you get your pods. That way people find us, hear us. And then they post their petty ass drama about how disrespectful it was for you to suggest they listen to this train wreck of a show. Do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closer. Otherwise, he will swing by your place and, uh, I don't know, unplug your porch lights or something. I don't, I don't know what he does with his spare time. And so, for me, Dave, I realized I missed today, but I'm too wrecked to care anyway. Bledsoe, producer. You, you realize this song is not about a power thing, but about a drinking binge. Oh. Gavin and all the fictional Scorpions fans on this show, we want to say, here's hoping that all your blackouts come from a bottle and not a corporate incompetence. And we'll see you all next week. Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What the Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. You ever heard of the son of Sam? Seltzer Kings Podcasts.